Hi, everyone. This is Jose with the Criminology Academy. If you aren't already, make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at the Crim Academy. After listening, please let us know what you think by leaving us a review wherever available. This podcast is sponsored by the Department of Sociology at the University of Colorado Boulder. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of the Spring 2022 lineup of the Criminology Academy podcast, where we are criminally academic. My name is Jose Sanchez. And my name is Jen Tosleib. And today we are excited to have Professors Jennifer Ortiz and Grant uh, T. Jen on the podcast. Both professors are part of the Division of Convict Criminology and the American Society of Criminology. Our discussion for the episode will center around the topic and area of study Um, convict criminology. Dr. Jennifer Ortiz is an assistant professor of criminology and criminal justice at Indiana University Southeast. She received her PhD in criminology from John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Her research centers on structural violence within the criminal justice system with a focus on reentry post-incarceration. She has been an active member of convict criminology for three years and currently serves as an executive counselor of the division of convict criminology. Dr. Grant Tijan is an associate professor of criminal justice at St. Ambrose University. He received his PhD from the Department of Sociology at University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He has been involved with convict criminology since 2005, mentoring new convict criminology members, publishing scholarship, and serving as the group's co-chair from 2017 to 2019. In 2020, he was appointed the inaugural chair of the newly formed American Society of Criminology, Division of Convict Criminology. Thank you so much, Jennifer and Grant, for joining us today. We're really happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having us. All right. So before we get started, just a quick overview of what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to start with some very broad questions on convict criminology. From there, move into a paper that is authored by our two guests on kind of the language debate in convict criminology. And last but not least, talk about the past and the future of convict criminology. So Jose, I will let you get us started. Okay. So I think let us begin with the broad question. Uh, (laughs) And what is convict criminology? Uh, well, I, I can s- speak to that if uh, you like. Um, it's um, essentially the three major pillars uh, of convict criminology are mentorship, um, advocacy, and scholarship. And uh, it's been framed in a lot of past, you know, scholarship, convict criminology scholarship as bringing the voice of uh, system impacted people to academia, to the policy table, um, to criminology, for example, right? Um, uh, Jennifer, anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, convict criminology really is allowing the voices of people who have been spoken about to actually be heard. So if you look at the history of 
criminology as a field, it was a lot of people who had never had direct impact with the criminal justice system talking about the criminal justice system. And so convict criminology gives voice to the people who have both been directly impacted, they've been arrested, incarcerated, but also individuals whose family members have been arrested and incarcerated and the impact that it has on them and really trying to bring those voices into a field that has been historically pretty conservative in, in its way of thinking. And so, and then more specifically, when we talk about convict criminology, you know, we're talking about, like you said, giving the voices to people that have been involved in the criminal justice system. Uh, what other types are, of issues or topics are um, is convict criminology specifically trying to address um, that maybe come up with, uh, or that you see come up through mainstream criminology, we can say? Well, I think for me, a big part of why I'm a part of convict criminology is to try to counter some of these um, long held beliefs within criminology about people who are convicts, whether they choose to you know, identify with that term or not, um, but combating these kind of more positivist conservative viewpoints that tend to have dominated the field of criminology for you know, decades, if not um, almost a century. And so that includes looking at the role of society in the creation of quote unquote criminals, looking at the role of society in the oppression of individuals um, who, uh, who are disproportionately put into the criminal justice system. So really giving these more critical perspectives into a field that does not, I, would, I don't wanna say appreciate, but that's, that might be the right term, but that doesn't appreciate or value kind of uh, critical perspectives. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think, you know, we, we bring a lot of nuance, a lot of the insider perspective in, into uh, criminology, um, whereas the field has been, you know, dominated by is very empirical, you know, very uh, statistically focused, quantitatively focused analyses, which do have a place that they do, they can be useful in certain contexts, but um, bringing our perspective and our voice from uh, the uh, perspective of lived experience brings a, a different sort, sort of picture. It brings new insights into the discussion, um, which presents and creates a more comprehensive picture of the, the you know, legal system experience. Uh, and and we, we, we think that that should be part of the criminal, you know, the criminological discussion within criminological research and with, within criminological policy. Absolutely. That's um, doing some research in the Oregon prison system right now. And that is one of our core things that we tell everyone that's incarcerated there that we're speaking to is, you know, you've never really had that much of a voice. So this is your opportunity. Um, and we're doing qualitative and quantitative data and they really appreciate it. It's cool to do. Absolutely. Um, so as both of you have pointed out, you know, this area of research is relatively new considering how long criminology has been around. And so when and how was this subset, so to speak, of criminology established? Yeah, um, I, I can speak to that if you'd like. Um, it, it was formed essentially from a, a discussions that happened at the 1997 American Society of Criminology Conference in uh, San Francisco. I only know this from reading articles because I, I wasn't there. Um, I uh, hadn't even been introduced to the criminal justice system yet at, at that point. Um, I, I full uh, 
full disclosure, I have similar criminal justice system contact, right? And I'm, I'm open about that. I discussed that mm -hmm. with, with colleagues and, you know, and so on. Um, but um, I, I got introduced to it later on in about 2005. Uh, nonetheless, uh, it formed at that point in time. Uh, and then as they, a group of, of scholars, you know, for, many of them system impacted, but many of them, them also just concerned scholars that wanted to continue the combat criminology mission, got together, they, they started writing uh, scholarship on the issue. And by about 2003, uh, uh, the book Convict Criminology was was published, uh, an anthology of um, of writings from various uh, convict criminology or scholars that uh, affiliated with convict criminology. Another point I'd like to make is not everybody that's a convict criminology calls themselves a convict criminologist or that, that you know, studies it. And we don't all walk around calling each other convict criminologists either. That's a very personal decision also, you know, along with the uh, decision to uh, d discuss a uh, ba background of criminal justice contact, right? Uh, that's very, very much a personal pr decision on, on that part. But, uh, you know, on the part of the individual, and we don't expect others to do that. Or, uh, we don't expect anyone to out themselves. That's only if they feel that that's, they're in a place where they are comfortable doing it. But uh, just to give you some perspective on that, but so we were formed in, in that era and, uh, you know, uh, that tough on crime era. Uh, right when they were openly, you know, in the media and uh, even criminologists, uh, cr conventional criminologists were calling people that, you know, had system contact, you know, uh, predator, super predators and criminals and uh, thugs and uh, worse, you know, terminology too. Um, and we formed as at least partially as a, as a response to that, you know, and, and uh, I guess I'll, I'll kind of stop it at that and ask Jen if you have anything to add to that. No, I was I was probably in kindergarten when convict criminology was was founded as a division. I mean, well, when it was founded uh, as an informal working group of scholars in order to provide um, you know mentorship and help and guidance throughout this the academic journey. Um, but I will say that uh, convict criminology has evolved over time because when I was an undergrad. Uh, well, my 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 undergrad mentor was a, a formerly incarcerated man of color, and he was a member of convict criminology before it was a formal division. And he told me that I couldn't fit in convict criminology because I uh, I hadn't served time in prison, right? Which was kind of the standard, right? You have to be a prison convict to be in convict criminology. We've evolved dramatically over time, where now. Um, someone like me who has been arrested and served a short amount of time in jail is still allowed to uh, be a part of the group. And we've evolved to the point where we encourage the family members of the incarcerated who are scholars to come and be a part um, of our organization because the realization is that uh, convictions affect people beyond the prison walls. So it's not just the person who's serving time, their family members are serving time with them. Uh, they are serving time beyond uh, beyond the bars, but they're still serving time. And so we have expanded to really encompass all of all individuals who have been directly or or indirectly impacted by the criminal justice system. And we've mentioned the formal division a few times now. Can both of you or one of you describe kind of the creation of this division as far as why and kind of how it was created? Mm -hmm. 
So um, conflict criminology was originally kind of a subdivision of critical criminology, the existing division of critical criminology, which is now the Division of Critical Criminology and Social Justice, I believe is their full title. Uh, but in so being a part of that, we, we, we didn't have our own funds. We couldn't set up our own kind of scholarships. We couldn't do the things that we envisioned for, for our group. And so we really wanted to stand on our own uh, because while I, I consider myself a critical criminologist, uh, we just really needed to be our own entity. And so I wasn't there when they were originally drafting up the constitutions, our amazing parliamentarian, uh, Daniel Cavish, uh, he's at Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. And so Daniel was able to work with people and, you know, create our constitution and really move us towards becoming uh, a division. And so we had, we went through the normal ASC processes of becoming a division. We went uh, in was 2018 or 2019 ASC. We went around gathering signatures. 19. Uh, uh, 2018, and then uh, established a board and, you know, submitted the paperwork. And in 2020, the ASC board voted to allow us to become the uh, the Division of Convict Criminology. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that um, at first it was sort of tucked in with uh, critical criminology. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more of like how exactly it fit in with uh, critical criminology, and then sort of maybe where at what point did you start deciding that maybe it's better off, we're better off kind of branching out and becoming our own division. Mm -hmm. I can speak to that. Um, um, how we, we fit under the, the division of uh, critical criminology because a lot of the, you know, original convict, early, early convict criminologists were involved in that you know, in that division of, of uh, the ASC. Um, and, and they had very critical perspectives on criminology, right? Um, I just think they began to see at, the, at that tough on crime era in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, that their, their issues weren't being addressed. They felt like kind of they were a little bit left out of the equation, you know, or, or the discussions. So they, they formed their own subdivision or area to, um, you know, to address that, you know, and bring their bring their concerns to the table. You know, now later on, though, uh, as as the years went by, um, society, you know, continued to evolve, and you know, uh, cultural norms continued to change and evolve, and the cultural norms of criminal justice continued to change and evolve over time. Right, um, as I think we've seen now, you know, there's the societal norms and, and values continue to shift and change even more quickly all the time. Uh, and perhaps, uh, you know, some of the ideas and concepts of convict criminology hadn't kept up with those, those cultural shifts and norms, the, that evolution, right? And, uh, and some of us began discussing, hey, look, you know, it looks like we're, we're uh, I don't know, our development, our thinking is, is slowed down, maybe, maybe stagnated a little bit. And, and maybe we need to think about whether is it time to move forward or, or and evolve or, or is it, you know, time to, uh, to kind of start to realize we're kind of dying on the vine here a little bit, you know. Uh, and, and so from that discussion, um, you know, that we started having in regards to that and looking around and saying, you know, you know, perhaps we need to focus more on, on 
in looking at issues of, of diversity, of inclusion within our group too, because we started out focusing so much just on fighting against, you know, being labeled initially. And then, and then you know, we're looking around and saying, well, I'm not sure we're, we're even in alignment with current criminal justice thinking. So we need to think about moving forward with that. So that's when the big discussions in regards, it had been sort of simmering for years, the real serious discussions about forming a division began to kick in. So we started having business meetings in like 2016, 17, uh, 18. Um, and that's where we, we began to sort of organize a little bit further before we became a formal division. And then we said, well, maybe we need to really take this step, really take this jump. The initial organizers were against it back in the 90s, becoming a division because they thought it would be assimilating with the systems of power, right? But then we realized, then some discussions moved over towards maybe we need some institutional support here to bring us further legitimacy. Now there's still discussions back and forth on this, you know, whether we should assimilate and, and, and what, or have we assimilated too much and so on. Before I go off into the weeds too far, I'll, I'll let Jen speak to anything she might, thoughts she might have on this too. No, I think that you covered it um, really well. I also, I understand, um, at least my understanding of the intent of not wanting to be a division or not wanting to assimilate is, uh, and the you know early issues with with diversity was not wanting other people to take over right so not wanting someone else to come in and take over this thing they had created this kind of safe space for individuals who had uh, you know criminal convictions and so it was nice to be part of the division of critical criminology they are a large division but it made more sense for us to have our own thing that is just us, right? That is controlled by us, that is not beholden to everybody else's opinions um, and perspectives. Mm -hmm. I might add that they've continued to be very supportive of us too. And we, we still have strong relationships with the Division of Critical Criminology and collaborate with many of their, their members. So to, just to as, give some further perspective on that. Yeah. And I think many of our members are also members of the Division of Critical yeah. Criminology. That, that's also true, myself included, right, yeah. So, kind of building a little bit more off of like sort of this development of uh, convict criminology, uh, Grant, we saw that, so you have this working paper titled Building a Formal Theory of Convict Criminology, and uh, this is also described in your paper, uh, Convict Criminology, Learning from the Past, Taking on the Present, Expanding mm -hmm. to Meet the Future. Uh, so, would you say that this means that convict criminology doesn't quite fit in with our more uh, traditional theories of crime, you know, like the, the three core ones, control, learning, strain. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, there's been a lot of discussion in regards to that as to whether we, over the years, and that's a great question uh, in regards to you know, whether we have a unique brand or, or whether we just fit in with, with the other, you know, majors, uh, brands of, of criminology. Um, and, and I talk about it in, in, in several, you know, several different papers. I'm, just, I'm talking about it in a book I'm working on right now, and I'm talking about it in a, you know, in a, I've talked about it in previous papers uh, um, that I've published. Um, and, you know, in, I, I talk about three different concepts in, in a previous paper, uh, you know, in that, the, you know, for example, that we, what's unique to us, uh, I talk about is that we emphasize you know, insider perspective and the potential for 
you know, uh, it has for challenging conventional criminological knowledge, you know, but, you know, it, we expose new developments at, at the organic level with, you know, within the dynamics that are being examined in the academy. And we feel that adds a lot to, to our, you know, to the uh, value of combat criminology. Um, secondly, um, and this is three parts, I explain, you know, how like mentoring and collaborative actions that we exist within our group are, you know, they connect uh, and, and the, of, you know, disjointed, fragmented pockets of individual combat criminology experience and knowledge, you know, and these allow you know, new ideas and concepts to, to form, you know, and to congeal into, you know, uh, pr production of new understandings of criminological phenomena, uh, you know, and also correctional and, you know, uh, formerly incarcerated cultures. Um, and in the third concept, you know, I talk about the rigors of, you know, uh, total institutional structures of prisons, you know, coupled with the stigma that's it's been placed on uh, system impacted people after release, this can function to provide, you know, scholars that have these experiences with improved capabilities of, of reflexivity, you know, you know, that can challenge the notion that, you know, their subjective experiences that they have might somehow nullify the findings of, of our, our, you know, of, that's been a critique of us that you're too subjective that nullifies your findings well we, we argue no this subjectivity adds to our findings right that it improves that and uh, i see a further theoretical development coming from those concepts right um there is still in development by the way too this is this not fully developed uh, theoretical paradigm shift it's just my uh concepts that i, I was discussing in in a paper uh and then I talk about it, I'm writing a book on, you know, system impacted groups, you know, that's similar to combat criminology, but including all a lot of other groups like underground scholars or, uh, you know, in California, for example, or, or uh, uh, rising scholars in California too, for example, or a formerly incarcerated college graduates network. But I talk about how the, on the other side, we also incorporate, I think, incorporate other theoretical components uh, that are already established. And one of the bigger ones that we talk about quite a bit is feminist standpoint theory. That, that standpoint component is an important part of our, of our perspective as combat criminologists. And, and many other theorists and uh, criminologists that when discussing, talking with combat criminologists have suggested that, you know, can you incorporate the standpoint theory into your discussions? But I also, and I'll just try to wrap this up for sake of time, but other concepts I think that have been, you know, have been discussed as being utilized in combat criminology are peacemaking criminology, cultural criminology, um, and, and uh, new the new criminology uh, that was you know brought about from scholarship in, in the United Kingdom, um, uh, insider perspectives on, on overuse of mass incarceration, um, which was some of the scholarship of John Irwin. And, and then once again, the feminist standpoint theory. So I just want to, I'll bring that response to a close for sake of time, but those are some of my thoughts on, on the theory of comic criminology. One thing that I do want to point out, and this is something that I myself fell into this trap before realizing yeah. more about um, who all is included in academia, but I feel like a lot of people general public speaking, and then also those in the academy often are not fully aware that individuals who have been to jail or prison are able to obtain doctoral degrees and become professors and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so just one example that I want to point out that's kind of a cool story that you mentioned in your papers um, is Frank Tannenbaum, who those people in criminology are probably very familiar with this name. Um, 
best known for his work on the dramatization of evil, kind of this early perspective on labeling theory. But as I found out by going through the Division of Convict Criminology's website and then also in some of the writings that I was reading preparing for this episode, he's also kind of unofficially considered by many scholars to be the first convict criminologist in the United States. So kind of his backstory is in 1914, he served a year on Blackwell's Island in New York City for labor disturbances involving a group of 200 unemployed and hungry men on the Lower West Side of Manhattan. Um, He did go on to write a book called uh, Wall Shadows, a study in American prisons, and then taught criminology at Cornell University. And so my question for both of you is whether or not you can share maybe some stories about other formerly incarcerated individuals who became professors and are open about it, kind of maybe their background, where they are now, what they're doing, so on. Well, I will say that I, I think people's misconceptions about us not existing is because we ha- we have to live in the shadows. It's just yeah. a reality of our life. So Grant is able to be more open now because he has the protection of tenure. I've got the protection of tenure coming up in, uh, in a few months. And so like I wrote my first autoethnographic chapter knowing that it would not be published till after the day my tenure started because I did not want to be denied tenure or fired simply because of my past experience, which is a very common struggle. Uh, one of the things that, that we try to do in conflict criminology is mentor these new scholars who are in PhD programs about how to get into the job market or even how to get into a PhD program because checking the box that says yes they can just deny you outright based on that. Or you can be admitted, but you can be denied funding. Or, I mean, I have seen people denied faculty positions for nonviolent felonies in which they served not a day inside prison. Like that's the extent of discrimination against people with criminal records in academia. And so I I don't wanna out anyone who isn't already out, but I will say that I I can speak about my uh, mentor, uh, Dr. Douglas Tompkins, uh, he served 11 years here in, in Indiana, ironically, although I did not meet him here um, in prison. He went on to earn his bachelor's degree from Ball State while incarcerated, and then he, he uh, eventually earned his PhD, I believe, from, from the University of Chicago. But he was hired on at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, where I was an undergrad, when he was ABD, so before he had actually finished his PhD, in part because he brought that insider a convict perspective to his sociology department. Um, He is not in academia anymore for a whole host of reasons, um, but he does consulting work. So he'll consult on legal cases. He will work on research projects with uh, nonprofit organizations, uh, but that's kind of where he's at. He's still in New York City. He's just not actively in academia because as a formerly incarcerated person, academia can be very exhausting and the way you're treated throughout your academic career can just be very exhausting and it can it can take a severe mental toll on people. Yeah. But so like, so example, every time Doug would, would give her talk, he would be introduced as, this is Douglas Tompkins, he served 11 years in prison, not here's this brilliant sociologist who wrote this amazing dissertation and publishes these papers. You know, it was always, it always started with that, you know, and we had long conversations about just how problematic that is. And imagine if I, I remind you of the worst time in your life every single time that I see you. That's what happens when you're a convict criminologist who is out and open. Um, I, you know, I can speak to when, when I was introduced to first, first and foremost into convict criminology, and I'll only talk about people that are very open and have, have already outed themselves in, in their work and in their scholarship and, you know, um, is, you know, like, uh, Steve Richards, for example, um, you know, 
one of the early members of, of combat criminology. If you're a study of the discipline, you, you'll, you'll know that name, generally speaking. He's, he's heavily cited in, you know, as some of the classical literature. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, he, he's retired now. He's emeritus now, um, you know, uh, but he had a, a, he had a full career in, uh, in criminology, uh, you know, at, at University of Wisconsin, uh, Oshkosh, I believe, right? Um, but, you know, um, and, uh, you know, so, and he, you know, introduced and mentored a lot, a lot of people along the way, right? Uh, myself included, um, you know, and uh, just for example, uh, you know, there's other people though that have been formally incarcerated though your question was broad you know for people that have been you know system impacted uh, formally incarcerated or, or convicted you know of a legal offense at some point that have become scholars uh you know um uh for example or you know like uh, angela davis for example was not convicted uh she did have you know legal system contact she was exonerated but she was she was incarcerated for a certain amount of time uh, while she was facing trial back in the early 70s, for example, uh, she doesn't identify as a combat criminologist and we don't claim her as one, uh, you know, uh, but but and she's, you know, a prolific scholar and, and a, you know, a, a, you know, very high profile human rights activists. Right. And so on, um, standing up for racial justice and so on and, and, and much more. D just to give you some examples of, of the scholars out there that that have, you know, interacted with the system and, and what they've done since that point. So there is, you know, there is hope. The door is open. I, I talk about that in some of my own research to, to uh, you know, those, you know, who are, have the, how do I say this, the privilege, you know, the, the fortune to get, make it through the educational system. But as, as Jennifer so accurately said, even if you do, it's the, the process is still not easy and, and it's very difficult. It's often, often obstacle ridden. Uh, and in a paper me and like Daniel Cavish wrote for uh, the Future of Combat Criminology book that was recently published in 2021, um, uh, a chapter of that, we talk about status fragility, how system impacted, you know, people, system contacted scholars have this added, you know, fragility of status that they have to grapple with throughout their entire careers. And it impacts them. Uh, Jennifer already did a very nice job of, of explaining that process and, you know, and what it looks like for a lot of scholars. They're carrying this invisible knapsack over their, you know, or backpack of full of stones over their backs. In many cases, they're dealing with all these other issues because of that, you know, those that that background of collateral consequences that, that many system impacted people deal with for the rest of their lives. So just to add that to the discussion. And I think another uh, one of the one just hearing Jen's question, uh, one of the names that came to mind and it only came to mind because I. I'm currently reading his book. Um, it's Christian Bolden oh, uh, yeah. and his book. Uh, I think his book, um, Out of the Red, uh, mm -hmm. does a really nice job. Uh, it's a great example of uh, sort of bringing in his lived experience and tying it in with the academic part, like, you know, the, the research. Uh, so uh, I, I would recommend um, Out of the Red by Christian Bolden. Yeah, so uh, th that uh, that book actually won the 2020 Frank E. Tannenbaum uh, Book of the Year Award from, from the Division of Convict Criminology. So we are 100% on board with recommending uh, Christian's book. Absolutely. All right, so shall we move into the paper then that we're discussing? Um, so the manuscript we're going to be talking about is authored by our guests, Jennifer and Grant, as well as their colleagues, Daniel Cavish and Allison Cox. It's called Let the Convict Speak, a Critical Conversation of the Ongoing Language Debate in Convict Criminology, and it's currently under review. 
just a quick summary of it and feel free to add anything to this if I'm missing anything. Um, the paper addresses criticisms faced by the Division of Convict Criminology regarding its name and the push to move to person first language, which avoids terms such as convict, inmate, and felon. More specifically, it explores the power of language by summarizing the ongoing language debate, reviewing convict criminology research, and addressing structural violence in the academy. Do you want to add anything to that summary or is that good? Oh, I okay. think that was perfect. Yeah. Very good. All right. Jose, I'll let you take it away. Okay. So based on the summary, our first question is, so can we get a little more uh, background on sort of the criticisms that have been levied against the Division of Convict Criminology because of the way that um, you decided to name yourselves and therefore the motivation behind this paper? So I will say that uh, there is a push within the field of criminology to change language and, and, and how we refer to people, especially individuals who have been processed through the criminal justice system, right? Avoiding, avoiding words like, you know, criminal, uh, you know, prisoner, inmate, you know, ex-convict, uh, and those types of words. So there, there's, there's a general push in our field to change language, which I think is a general push across a lot of fields, right? So even the American uh, Psychological Association put out a guide, uh, you know, on language and stuff. So there's a push, I think, overall in society to kind of change how we talk about people. And so when this, when we decided to become the Division of Convict Criminology, uh, we filled out the paperwork. Uh, there was debate and, and a vote amongst the existing members before we became a formal division as to whether we should change our name or not. The vote was the majority wanted to keep the name Convict Criminology for a whole host of reasons. When, it, when the official announcement came out in April 2020 that we were officially a division and the ASC, and the ASC board had you know, voted in favor of our proposal, we got a backlash um, on Twitter. Uh, I am very active on Twitter. Uh, Grant's not as active as me, but also active on Twitter. And we started getting tweets like, oh, that's wonderful. Now you should change your name. Or why would you name yourselves that? Or, you know, why are you dehumanizing yourselves? And it was just all this like, we were so happy that we had gone through the mountains of paperwork and steps to become a division. And it's like, they just came and rained on our parade. And so Grant, I, and uh, me, Grant, Allison, and Dan decided we want to write about the long history of us discussing, us being the Division of Common Criminology. We've had long debates about this word. We've had long debates and not all members agree. I will say that just because we are the Division of Convict Criminology, that doesn't mean everyone's on board. In fact, at this last year's ASC, we had a whole other debate about, about the word convict, right? And so we just wanted to inform the public and largely academics about how much we had put into really thinking about this word. What's the history? This is not a new conversation for us. It's a new conversation for, for everyone else, but convict criminologists have been having this language conversation for 25 years now, right? And so it seems like everyone got on board the language train and we were already like out of the station. We had already been discussing this for two decades at that point. And so we wanna say, okay, we hear you, but also we don't need to be told why the word is problematic because we know why it's problematic. We've had these conversations but when the majority of members vote to keep the word, we go like a democracy should with the majority, right? And so our motivation was just, hey, this is our debate. This is what's happening within convict criminology. And we want you all to know that we hear your criticisms, 
They have been raised by our very own members, but at the end of the day, the consensus of the majority has been to keep the word. And so from here, the manuscript manuscript kind of starts off by discussing more in-depthly this idea of person first, as well as identity first language. And this was actually the first time that I'd heard of identity first language. Um, and so what do these terms refer to and how are they unique from each other? So person first, I don't want to use the word to actually define the word, but it's when you mention the individual first before their actual you know, disability is how it it's most often used, right? Or their status or their identity. So it's the difference between person with a conviction and then convict, right? Or person with a disability and disabled person, right? So person with a disability is person first. Uh, disabled person is identity first, right? And so that's kind of how those, what those two words mean. And I will admit that Daniel Cavish wrote that amazing uh, analysis of person first, identity first. I was confused at first, but, uh, that's my understanding of those two terms. Yeah, that's and that's my understanding of the of those of that discussion. Also, um, yeah, and kudos to Dan once again on the on the in depth analysis of that. Uh, he was a you know a scholar. He focuses a lot on labeling theory, so um, he he had a lot a lot to say on that that discussion. But um, you know um, the environment of criminology we, we talk about um, shifted over time to, um, you know, um, and we use the term convict, we claimed it, you know, uh, a lot of discussion talks about that initially, and it's discussed in this paper, uh, as, you know, as part of language reclamation, right, uh, that concept, uh, you go, moving clear back to, um, the early nine, the late nineties, and so on. Uh, you know, this term is being used, weapon used against us. You know, weaponized against us. We're going to reclaim it and take it back and uh, use it as our own term, for example, right? Um, and now there's, you know, discussion of you know humanizing language, and which we're on board with, and which we, we completely agree with, and we support that for ourselves and our own members. But, uh, many of us do, um, and uh, you know. There was also discussion of, of the term convict, you know, in early convict criminology literature as being a humanizing term because it was uh, the definition of convict is a, a person who has been convicted of a crime. And it was compared, they were comparing it in early CC literature to other terms like, um, you know, super predator or criminal or something like that, where they were dehumanizing term, labeling, you know, pejorative terms. And, and making the argument that, you know, this is referring to people's, you know, personhood, you know, and thus humanizing them. Now, there's those that argue that that's not accurate or that that, that definition has shifted culturally over the last 20 years. And that's a discussion that we've had also, you know, but, but that's just to give you some pers perspective on, on why they picked up the term uh, convict and uh, versus how we perceive it now. And that's discussed in the paper, too, in pretty good detail. It was interesting to read. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So getting a little bit more, and then we, we've, or you have both mentioned this uh, a, a few times where there was this internal debate over this word convict. Um, and, you know, Grant, you kind of started touching on it a little bit, but can you give us some more details on so what this internal debate looked like for, against, where some people like, I don't really care. 
Um, and then maybe how you both feel about this and the sort of like the, the debate in general. I can take it, sure. Uh, so um, people who are against the word uh, view it as a slur. And that was that, that's an exact quote that I'm recalling from, from our business meeting at ASC. They view it as offensive, right? They just don't want that term. Uh, they don't want to be labeled as that term and they won't and they don't want that term associated with them. They believe that it is in fact dehumanizing. And some have argued that we are we are adopting the language of the state, right? So we are we we are taking the word convict, which was created by the state to put a label on us, and therefore we should reject that that entire uh, concept. Some people say, listen, I don't care, right? Because if you call me a convict or you call me a person convicted of a crime, you're still treating me exactly the same way. So what does it matter, right? Um, it only matters that you change what you're doing to us, not what you call us. Um, some people, you know, take, take the position like, listen, we're just, we're just splitting hairs at this point, you know, like what's the point of this? What, what is our end goal? And then the people who uh, are for keeping it, there's, there's different perspectives why people want to keep it. Some people in fact want to reclaim it like what Grant said, like we are taking the power back, right? So we see the same thing in queer criminology, right? Kind of reclaiming the word queer and making it not be, not have the same stigma, right? Uh, we can call each other that, but you can't call us that, right? Is uh, kind of that uh, position. Other people are for it. Other people like myself, I am for keeping the name uh, because I feel like people want us to change convicts to make them feel better. They want to feel better about what it is they are doing to us. I want to keep it because I want it in their face. I want them to always have to, I, I want them to always have to grapple with their own role in the oppression of people who have criminal records, right? I want the word there. We can change it to justice impacted and it'll make everybody feel warm and fuzzy inside. But at the end of the day, we still can't get jobs. We still can't get into PhD programs. We're still harassed. We've still got to deal with parole. We still have housing restrictions. You know, we're still dealing with all of this. And I want them, especially the American side of criminology to grapple with its role in our oppression. And so I don't want to change the name to satisfy people who are not convicts themselves, who are not actually directly impacted um, uh, by this word or rather uh, by this uh, criminal justice system rather. Grant, do you have anything to add to that or no? I think that sums it up okay. very nicely. Yeah, I have nothing to add to that. No. Great. Yeah, I um, will say real quick, sorry, Jen. Yeah, no, uh, go ahead. But when I saw the official announcement uh, on Twitter that you know we have the division of convict criminology, uh, I do feel like it, it packs a bit of a punch, you know, like, ew, like mm -hmm. it did sort of I must admit I was a little surprised that it got through ASC um, given you know that I I would have guessed that there would have been enough backlash from like the executive board or something um, like oh you, ooh, you can't do that that's not culturally sensitive or whatever um, but so I was a little surprised when I saw I, you know I'm I'm glad that you guys got to keep the name the way you wanted it um, I will also say that uh, Daniel Cavish has a really interesting take. He says that he wants it, he wants it pronounced as convict criminology. Like we need to convict <laughs> the field of criminology right. for the horrible atrocities that they've mm -hmm. committed um, against society. All right. So, oh, Grant, go ahead. 
I was just going to say, uh, interestingly, uh, you know, and gratefully, we, we got we received a lot of support from uh, a lot of divisions of of of, uh, of uh, the American Society of Criminology too, uh, and from the uh, executive. Uh, you know, um, so we were very grateful for that. Uh, we received a lot of support from uh, queer criminology, from uh, the Division of Women in Crime, um, uh, from the Division of People of Color in Crime. Uh, so, uh, what we had a we had broad spectrum support um, with people that you know shared a lot of the same sentiments that we did in in regards to you know our, our mission. So, I, I, I just wanted to. Kind of give give you a little a little background on on how we were perceived when we were attempting to uh, petition to become a division. On that note, one topic that I personally and I think Jose too thought that we needed to discuss in this podcast, and you, I'm going to use pull a quote directly from the manuscript that we read, is that the convict criminology discipline has been criticized for its lack of diversity and inclusion across race and ethnicity nationality and gender. And so can you guys describe this criticism in more detail? Um, and then how does bringing in a more diverse and inclusive perspective enhance convict criminology? Uh, I can so, go, go I wasn't, so convict criminology originally was largely comprised of older white men, right? And so over time, they were criticized for not having more, more women and more people of color, specifically because people of color are disproportionately impacted and disproportionately incarcerated. However, I think while the criticisms were, were valid, I think that the criticisms should have been lodged at criminology as opposed to just convict criminology, right? So if we look at the field of criminology, it is very much dominated by old white men. To this day, it's dominated by old white men. That's a fact. And so academia did not allow convict scholars in until really modern times. And then when they did allow convicts in, they only allowed the convicts they were comfortable with in, which were almost by default, old white men, right? Those were the ones perceived as being not, not a, a threat or a danger to the, to the university and college systems. So academia served as this gatekeeper that kept people of color and women uh, out of its space. And then when convict criminology was created, the people who were actually admitted to academia and allowed to be part of it were the only ones that were in convict criminology because that's the people that um, that existed. And so the criticism was valid, but I also think that it needed to be a broader criticism. If you go to any ASC conference and look around, it is a very white space. It is a very male dominated space. It is a very conservative space. So I think originally convict criminology reflected the field of criminology. And I think one thing that, that we've been really good at is, is increasing diversity. So if you look at our current, our current board, we are a female dominated board. Uh, Grant and Dan are the only men on our board. Uh, we have four women of color on our board, right? We are, if you look at the rest of the boards across ASC, we have one of the most diverse boards out of any division within ASC, including even the you know, uh, you know, division of people of color and crime, for example. Right, we are a very, very diverse board, and I think that we have worked really hard to intentionally make make our board uh, diverse and inclusive. And we have, and we are working to bring in more scholars, especially scholars of color, who just don't know we exist. They just don't know there's a space. 
But at the same time, it becomes really difficult when those very same scholars are, are excluded from the academy in the first place. All right, I can't find undergraduate convict scholars if colleges systematically exclude them. Right, I can't find uh, you know, convict professors if, if, if the academy systematically um, excludes them. So we are working on it. We have diversity initiatives. We, we have created a bunch of initiatives to begin in 2022 to try to um, increase diversity and inclusion. But I think historically, our division reflected academia and it reflected the actual demographic makeup of the academy. And now as the academy is shifting and trying to reinvent itself and increase diversity, increase inclusion, we're, you know, we are doing the same. And as, as they begin to admit more people of color and more women and people who have criminal records, we will be able to um, increase our diversity and inclusion too. And, you know, early on, you know, in the earlier days of, of combat criminology too, um, there was, you know, there was mentorship and there was inclusion of, you know, uh, people of color, uh, people from marginalized backgrounds, people from, you know, intersectionally oppressed you know, populations. And, you know, many did make it through, but a, a, a large number were unable to because of the structural obstacles that they kept encountering, right? Uh, that, uh, would somehow you know, block their progress, for example, or, or slow their progress, for for example, and and thus, you know, as as I don't want to add too much, you know, Jen already explained very, you know, very concisely in regards to how that process works, but you know that that did then facilitate that the people who did were able to make it through reflected the rest of the the American, you know, criminology in regards to being older white men, often of middle class or upper middle class backgrounds and so on. So just to give some perspective on that, right? But yeah, you know, um, yeah. And we are, you know, working very, you know, diligently to, to focus on, you know, the, the new initiatives, you know, but also not not just about talking about it, but about being about it, right? So if, if we're gonna do these initiatives, we're gonna not just, you know, uh, uh, you know, give lip service, we're, we're going to, you know, get engaged with, uh, rate fundraising with, with taking, you know, direct action for scholarships to get uh, marginalized students or, you know, uh, uh, gr groups, you know, involved in convict criminology and get them to the conferences, get them, get them, that they're publishing their scholarship out there, get it published, you know, um, be, being very mindful of those, those concepts too. So um, there's, a, there's a lot of work going on in regards to that, you know, uh, and, and it's ongoing, even at the current time, you know. So it's, it's, been mentioned a couple of times you know, throughout the podcast and then in your manuscript you uh, talk about this as uh, so developing um, inclusive and supportive groups for um, scholars with criminal records uh, but we wanted to ask if you could provide us and our listeners with some examples on how we can go about doing this um, how can we be more inclusive and supportive yeah I um... mean uh, what I, I'll refer back to my previous uh, comments um, just before this, this question, um, you know, getting, you know, putting our money where our mouth is funding, uh, you know, initiatives to, to get, you know, diverse scholars to conferences to get them involved in scholarship. That's it. That's a, one thing that we can do. Another thing is collaborating with others, you know, um, who might not have an opportunity to have engaged with, with uh, you know, higher level scholarship or, you know, or with peer reviewed scholarship to get given these opportunities, right? As a new scholar, I was mentored in that capacity. And now 
a lot of us, you know, that have progressed in combat criminology or working with other with other scholars, but being mindful of those who you might have limited, somewhat more limited opportunities, uh, bring them in on projects, work, work with them, give them that mentorship, give them the time, have the phone conversations, have, right, you know, during the pandemic, just phone conversations instead of meeting in person, but, but have, spend, the, spend the time working with, with more, you know, diverse groups. Um, that, for me, is a couple, you know, perspective, you know, I guess you know, you know, strategies that I've that I've been you know mindful of and have tried to engage with. Um, Jen, do you have any you know further thoughts on on other strategies? Well, yeah, I also think that uh, one of my biggest calls is to ban the box on these college applications, right? Because I can I can pay for someone's way to get to this ASE conference, but if you're not letting them enroll in your school, you know I, I can't really help them, and so I think that. We owe it to, to system-impacted individuals and formerly incarcerated individuals to fight back against these, these institutional policies that keep them um, out, of, you know, out of college in the first place. We, all the research tells us education is one of the greatest ways to reduce recidivism, right? Education is one of the greatest ways to move up um, in class, right, to, uh, to be stable. And yet we are systematically excluding them, right? So I will use my uh, university, uh, I'm at Indiana University, they have the box. Have you ever been convicted of a crime? And then if, if you check yes, your, your application goes into a special file that goes into a different review committee that includes our chief of police. So just imagine the mind frame. I love our chief of police on campus. He's a really great guy. But think about the mind frame that he's coming at looking at that application. It's not about can this person be a successful college student. Is Do I view them as a threat based on something they did however many years ago, right? And so uh, we need to fight to, to uh, ban these boxes. I would love to see the establishment of, you know, prison to college pipelines. We, there, we talk so much about, you know, like the school to prison pipeline. Let's create a prison to college pipeline, right? Now, now that we have Pell Grants, every university should be inside of correctional facilities offering college classes and real meaningful college classes, right? To these individuals, we should be working uh, to offer them education and then, and then we should just grant them admission into our universities. They should not have to go through the process a second time, right? They've proved that they can handle the work. Um, so that's one way. And I also think that um, banning the box just removes that stigma. I don't have to think about that when I'm applying for college, right? Um, most people just don't understand. Once you check the box, some universities make you write a whole essay and detail every single detail of your crime, your conviction, how much time you serve, what happens, the most dehumanizing process. And I mean, I've had, I've had conversations with individuals who have criminal records who just had mental breakdowns filling out like these essays, right? Because it's so traumatic to relive your worst days over and over again. And so getting rid of the box, and then once they're here, let's create spaces for them, like the underground scholars, right? Spaces where, where, where they can come together and they can have community. And then it's on us, uh, individuals that are kind of, you know, later in their career or post-tenure to then reach back and mentor those people, right? Reach back and help them overcome all of these obstacles, right? So I'm very much of, of the notion that if a junior scholar contacts me, my first thought is, how do we get you tenure? Because I know tenure gives you protection. So what can I do to help get you to that tenure process, to that tenure point? And that can be, you know, applying for grants together, uh, doing research together, writing papers together, just any way that I can help them get uh, across like that tenure threshold, so to speak. 
Yeah. And then Jen and I actually both renewed our FAFSAs today. And one of the things while we're while we were filling it out, you know, they ask you, have you ever been convicted of a, whatever it is that they ask? And uh, oh, drug offense. Yeah. Drug yep. offense. Yeah. And and then even if it doesn't cost you funding, but just the question might deter some people, right? So like, whoa, like, yeah, time. maybe I got into college, but now I can't mm-hmm. afford it because they're obviously going to deny me because I have to answer yes to this question. Yeah. I was um, I was impacted by that 20 some years ago. Um, I had to delay college because I was I was I was served two years in you know federal prison for a drug offense, and I you know was unable to get access federal aid because of that for a, a certain amount of time. Yeah, and if you think about it, there's no real logic behind it because you nope. can murder someone and get financial aid. Yep. You just can't sell drugs and get financial aid. It just right. right. You know they don't want you getting those college students high. Yeah. No, they don't. I think they think that like drug offenders are just going to wait for their like uh, for their um, financial aid check and then go like and, then go. and just start selling drugs. Like right. I'm convinced that that's what they think. Probably. Yeah. I spent all this effort to get to graduate school so that I could right. start to become an international. Like so a better fund yep. my drug empire. That's sure. Oh man. All right, so. The last thing that I kind of want to ask you about the paper, and it's a more broad question, really, um, is that in the manuscript, it's, and Grant, you've mentioned this too, um, and I think Jennifer as well, that identifying as a convict criminologist is this personal decision. Um, It's a decision that the individual makes themselves and people should kind of honor this. And so I do have not direct experience, but secondhand experience with the criminal justice system going in and visiting people in prison and so on and so forth. But for those of us who haven't had this direct contact, is there kind of an agreed upon or preferable term for us to use for individuals who have been incarcerated or currently are incarcerated in some way? I no. heard- <laughs> No, I argue it's very subjective or that it's, you know, it's very, a very personal d- decision in, in that capacity. And, and how I view it is that it's, it's very much the uh, decision and, you know, the uh, choice of the individual as to what they'd like to be referred to as, you know, there's a lot of, you know, different opinions on how, how to be referred to even within convict criminology. I've in my book I, I'm working on where I'm interviewing people from like underground scholars and you know rising scholars and formerly incarcerated college graduates network and and convict criminology. There's a lot of d- different discussion in regards to that. Uh, you know, uh, underground scholars you know came out with a web page of, of terminology to be used, but even that in that they discuss. Uh, I think that these are just suggestions or or, or guidelines, right? But they're also you know, open to that that dis- that discussion. You know. Um, uh, as to using different terminology. Uh, Jen, do you, uh, you have any for, you have more thoughts on that? I mean, for me, I'm like, it, if you want to call yourself a convict, a convict criminologist, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have been convicted of a crime, right? Because you are impacted by this criminal justice system. Yeah. I know that some of our members who have family members who are incarcerated, but they've never been incarcerated, call themselves the non-cons in our group. Um, that's a that's a term that that they just made up that you know that that uh, that they use. But I say you know call yourself whatever you want, and then just make people call you that. Like just make sure that they call you what you want to be called. 
something like academic, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) You know. Uh, Okay. So uh, with the last 10 or so minutes that we have left, we want to talk about the future of convict criminology. And so, well, I guess this question is not necessarily the future, but sort of retrospective on what you believe that the biggest success of convict criminology has been. Upsetting a lot of people with our name. (laughs) 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 Uh, I think just creating a space for us to exist, right? But even before we were a division, it was just a, a space for people to come and you know talk about issues they were experiencing, research they were doing, you know how how they should approach approach academia. So I would say one of our biggest successes is just serving as a support group for people who have been you know marginalized by the criminal justice system. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I could add to that further. Is how many times I've had people tell me at the at the American Society of Criminology and, and or in later discussions that in confidence, you know that. I was so glad to find a group of people that I could talk to that that were a supportive group. You know, people, you know, they would say a people, a group of people like me, or you know, that understood or that got that got it. You know, they've used different ways of framing it, but and and but how thankful they were that you know they said until I got ran into this group, you know, I, I didn't feel like I fit in or I felt kind of very isolated or alienated. So, you know, that that. You know, interestingly, to add to that, you know, to that point even further in, in my research, you know, I, I've been referring to other groups use that also talk about that, that, that there's their groups are, you know, the support group. I call them system affected academics, you know, these groups and that they, they've acted as given them these spaces for support within universities and, and uh, the academic uh, sphere, I guess you could say. Right. So. That in and of itself is is huge, um, you know. Um, I think another accomplishment has been a, a growing, ever growing, and ever more substantial body of scholarship uh, that brings lived experience, perspective, and uh, you know uh, the perspective of, of whether lived, you know. And I, and I don't just mean autoethnographies, uh, you know. There's, though that's an per- important part of, of comic criminology work, but. But all, all, all types of uh, method, you know, criminological methodologies and research, but from the perspective of of people that have you know uh, system contact, they've brought they've created this body of scholarship and it's substantial and it's growing, and it's ever so important you know uh, in this space of criminology that doesn't always account for uh, for our voice that doesn't always account for our viewpoints. Men. Looking forward to the future, where would you like to see convict criminology going? Well, I have really lofty goals. I've, I've shared these with Grant before, um, but I will talk about some of the things that 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 we have been, been able to accomplish and some of the things I would love to see us do. So at our last uh, business meeting in 2021, uh, we voted to establish a scholarship fund uh, for, for, for formerly incarcerated uh, individuals or individuals who have criminal records. Um, we've been able to raise $2,000 literally in the past 60 days. Um, and our goal, my goal is to raise $10,000 is what I would like to see me, uh, be able to raise, uh, to create, uh, so we've established a scholarship and our goal is to fund at least five scholars a year, giving them each $500 scholarships to try to offset the cost of attending ASC. We recognize that that's not a huge amount. I hope in the future it can be $1,000 or $2,000. 
But we understand that individuals who have criminal records and have been system impacted, they have lower wages, it's harder for them to find employment, they're struggling, sometimes they're not even eligible for scholarships that, that uh, do exist on their campuses. So we were able to create this. And for the ASC conference in November of 2022, we will have our first uh, funded uh, round of scholarships. Something else that we established at, at our meeting, which we are in the creating the foundation for right now, is a formal mentorship program, where uh, early career scholars will be paired with someone like myself or Grant, who's already post tenure, to kind of try to help them uh, navigate uh, academia. What I would love to see us do in the future is I would love to see us establish our own journal, our own academic journal. Uh, we have, the, you know, there's the Journal of Prisoners on Prisons, which is very important. Uh, but I would like to see a convict criminology journal where it's our voices and only our voices, um, you know, existing in that space. I would love to see us create our own conference. Um, there are there are convict criminology conferences in other parts of the world. I would like to see us have our own here. Um, in the United States and bring together scholars from, from around the world to have these conversations about what they're experiencing in their countries um, and what's going on, because we have no idea what's happening in some other countries, but some of what's happening in those countries is just so fascinating and so progressive and things I wish we could do here. And I would love to bring all of those um, voices together. I hope that I hope that we continue to grow and we're able to mentor more scholars and increase the ranks of convict criminology and who knows, maybe one day we'll have my real dream, which is just to take over the 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 American Society of Criminology. That's my goal. <laughs> Absolutely. And <Yeah, no. laughs> but uh, thank you, Jen. I mean, yeah, that her those kinds of, those ideas were include every, every uh, future hope uh, that I have for convict criminology, too. And, and she, she was so comprehensive. She literally took all my ideas. So, yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, uh, unfortunately, as always with these episodes, we are out of time. And, you know, I think we hit most of the key points uh, with this conversation. We, you know, they're always so interesting. We wish these episodes could be three, four hours long, but um, that's probably not. It's probably for the best that we keep them close to an hour. Um, so thank you both for joining us today. Um, is there anything that you would like to plug? Anything we should uh, be on the lookout for i know grant you've mentioned the book um any idea when we could maybe expect that to hit the shelves yeah yeah uh well uh i'm i'm hoping by late let's say by 23 is when i'm looking at you know at this book uh and uh my book's called justice lessons the rise of system affected academics and it looks at groups like comic criminology similar to us uh, all across the united states and, and and internationally too right um that's my first plug. I have a second plug, which is there's a special issue of the Journal of Prisoners on Prisons uh, on tw the 25 years of convict criminology that's coming out in hopefully in July of this uh, of this year. I'm one of the guest editors, along with uh, 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 J. Renee Trom Dr. J. Renee Trombley and, and uh, Dr. Allison Cox, too. So um, just put in a couple plugs for those two things. I will also we'll try to that. I'm sorry. On that, we'll try and remember around July, but if not, always feel free to shoot us an email and we can add it to our website too. So absolutely. And thank you for that. I will do. Yeah. And uh, I would just like to encourage anybody who is interested in joining convict criminology uh, to just, uh, you know, join us. We have intentionally made student membership free. 
And that's because we understand, we just didn't want to put more financial burden onto students, but you don't have to be convicted of a crime to be part of convict criminology. Uh, we welcome, you know, varying perspectives and anybody who wants to, you know, work on the stuff th that, that we have visions for the future, I encourage you to, you know, come now and uh, join us as we, as we build the foundation and, you know, you can help direct us um, moving forward. Absolutely. And I'm a member. <laughs> Everyone should join. <laughs> oh, mate. Yeah, I'll definitely join too. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> where can people find you? Uh, I mean, you have you mentioned that you're both on, on Twitter. Um, so Twitter, email, Google Scholar, that, that sort of thing. All of the above. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so my Twitter handle is at Ortiz underscore PhD. Um, that's usually where you'll find me saying crazy things online that that people really like. So I think mine is something really, you know, complex, like at Grant Tejan or at Tejan Grant. <laughs> I, I'm not very imaginative on, on Twitter, uh, but I, I'm really trying hard. Um, but I'm also on Facebook. Uh, you can find Comic Criminology's website on uh, or sorry, a page on Facebook and you can find us on Twitter, too. And we also have a Web page that. Uh, is now through the uh, American Society of Criminology, but concrim.com, uh, concrim.org, concrim.org. Dan, Daniel Cavish would be very unhappy if I said the name wrong because he, he helped design our web website and worked very hard to do so. Yeah, perfect. And I'll also put all that stuff in um, the episode description so um, people won't have to try and sound it out or anything. Um, well, Thank you both again. It was a great talking to you both. Uh, we look forward to uh, that our paths shall cross, cross again uh, soon, hopefully in person. Um, but we'll see. We'll, yeah, we'll see how things yeah. go. Thanks so Thank much you for both of you. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time. time.